Good morning. It is great to be with you here. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65 is our text for us this morning. Uh, as you turn to Mark 14, let me just make a few preparatory comments. Uh, first, uh, greetings to you from the Columbus Reformed Presbyterian Church. Uh, it is great uh, to uh, have this fellowship of churches together and thankful for Philip uh, preaching there this morning as I preach here. Uh, second, I'll say greetings uh, from my family. Uh, Orlina and I were reflecting this morning that we've had this actually strange experience in the time uh, that you've invited me to come preach here. Uh, this is the fourth time, we believe, uh, since uh, I've been at Columbus that we've attempted to come here, and every other time we've had sickness uh, break out in the family, either Saturday night or Sunday morning. Uh, so this is actually the first time the whole family has been able to be here with you all. Uh, we hope that trend doesn't continue in future years, uh, as I may have opportunity to preach here for you. Uh, the third comments I'll make as we come to Mark chapter 14 uh, is that I do recognize that your pastor, Philip, uh, is going through Mark, and I feel a bit guilty this morning because I'm jumping way ahead in the story for you all, uh, and I'm giving away uh, a bit of the ending, and uh, hopefully uh, it doesn't disappoint you too much or make you uh, disinterested in Philip's sermons in uh, months to come, uh, because we are jumping forward in the book of Mark, uh, but I trust you'll be blessed uh, to get this snapshot of what's uh, uh, yet to be in your own preaching series as we look at the trial of Jesus before the council, uh, and the Lord will bless us as we consider this text this morning. Mark 14, verses 53 through 65. Uh, we'll give ear to God's word. Let's pray before we read. Father, we're thankful for your word. Uh, we're thankful that the entrance of your word brings light, so we would pray this morning that you would bring light to our eyes and that you would move in our hearts that we might see you more clearly and be led to see our Savior, Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 14, verses 53 to 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of God. 
Well, all of us find ourselves a bit like Peter here this morning. We are, verse 54, uh, peeking in, listening in to a Jewish trial of a Jewish rabbi from the first century A.D. And in any normal kind of circumstance, this is not a place that we would expect to find ourselves. But here we are. Here Peter is in verse 54. How did Peter get here? How did you get here? How did I get here? Uh, for my own sake, and I trust for yours, uh, it is not because of uh, some hobby for ancient Jewish law, uh, the type of thing that's uh, if I could do whatever I want on a, on a normal morning, I'd gather with a bunch of folks like you, and we would talk about ancient Jewish trials just for the interest of learning how these things unfolded. Uh, that's not why we're here, and we could even say that's not why Peter was here. Peter was just a fisherman. But what is it that led Peter, that leads us, to suddenly be peeking in on this trial? The simple answer is that following Jesus has led us here. Following Jesus in the book of Mark leads us here. The Jesus of the book of Mark, and I trust you're hearing this as you go through your preaching series in the morning, this Jesus grabs your attention and you follow. Uh, he's a bit like a shooting star or the northern lights or the Grand Canyon. You can't help but get your eye on this one and follow. In the book of Mark, there are crowds that follow Jesus. There are disciples. Some are interested. Some are committed to follow. Some are just curious at what's happening. But the Jesus of Mark is one that humanity finds itself gazing at. Men and women, boys and girls, just like you, find yourself gazing at Jesus, and then suddenly he leads you into the courtyard of the high priest to watch a trial. This was Peter's own experience, Mark 1.17. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And now it's Peter's following has led him all the way to this surprising location. And as we suddenly find ourselves watching in on this trial, I trust that we're also all like Peter here. If you know Peter, he has his confusions, his uncertainties, his sins, his failures, his inabilities. They're all pulsating within him. He's thinking about these things, and so are you. You have these from your past week. You have all kinds of discouragements or sins or disappointments or doubts, and Suddenly, in the face of those, you watch Jesus Christ on trial. So what do you do? What are we going to do this morning? Well, we're going to listen in. We're going to watch the trial of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see what is it that we discover in Jesus that is indeed this morning the answer to the needs of one like Peter or you or me. And as we listen in, it will be helpful for us or important for us to sort of have a visual map in our minds before we dive into what's uh, the, the sort of the intricacies of the text. Let me just briefly draw a map in your mind before we walk into the points of the text to get you a sense of what's going on here. Uh, Jesus and the council and Peter, they are there in Jerusalem, the largest the most prominent city there in south-central Israel, about maybe 25,000 residents at that time, uh, of, uh, that time of history. The center of Jerusalem, 
uh, is walled in, and the walled-in portion of Jerusalem where this would be was about 160 acres. If you picture a home in a neighborhood having about a half acre of land, you could fit about 320 homes there in Jerusalem. And facing south to north, the walled-in portion of Jerusalem is a bit like a box that tapers off at the top. And on the northeast side of that box, that walled-in section of Jerusalem, up on a mount, is the temple. The temple is this beautiful, glorious center of the life of Israel. It's the center of the worship of the people of God, the center of God's presence. Priests uh, would go into the temple and offer sacrifices daily for the sins of the people. At the heart of the temple is communion with God and the Holy of Holies. Everything about this temple communicated the presence and glory and worth of the God of Israel. And just to the south, or maybe to the west of the temple, was the courtyard of the high priests. The high priest is the chief officer of the temple. And everything that happens in that courtyard uh, basks in the light of the temple, both literally and metaphorically. Sitting there in the shadow of the temple... In the courtyard of the high priest, the matters of the temple law are adjudicated. Uh, Perhaps you could compare it slightly to uh, how in Washington, the Supreme Court building sits right by the Capitol building. Everything in the Supreme Court building adjudicating what takes place or what has been decreed from our Capitol. You see, everything that takes place here in the trial in the courtyard of the high priest is here to advance the purposes of the temple. It's here to advance the, uh, or to seek to preserve the temple, at least in the minds of the council. And this is where we meet and discover Jesus Christ. Here's the shock of the text. The shock value of the text then and to us this morning. The priest and the council think they're advancing temple life, but actually Jesus is. Well, the priest thinks he is advancing temple life. It's Jesus who is found in this text to be advancing the true life of the temple of God. So in this discovery of Jesus, now with this map in our mind, we can discover Jesus. We have three discoveries in our text this morning. Each will lead us to discover how Jesus meets the great needs of those like Peter and us. And the first is this, and you'll see it there in your outline if you have it in front of you, is indeed a temple discovery. There is a temple discovery in this text, verses 53 to 59, with a pinpoint on verse 58. As we read, the chief priests and the council, they try to find an accusation against Jesus, an accusation that will stick. Uh, And this is Jewish Law 101, that it takes two or three witnesses to establish a matter with a particular emphasis on a matter that would lead to the individual's death. You can read about that, say, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. And more on this inability to find two or three witnesses as we go through. They struggle to find anything that sticks on Jesus Christ. But then finally, a weighty accusation appears. Verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. What an accusation. Now just feel the weight of that accusation in light of the map that we just drew. In the shadow of the temple, in the shadow of the heart of the life of the people of God there, the accusation is that Jesus would destroy that temple 
The temple courtyard is there to adjudicate or to promote the life of the temple, and now they have an accusation that seems fairly weighty to bring this thing down. No wonder, no wonder this accusation comes. If you were there, you yourself would be shocked to hear it, that Jesus was planning to destroy the temple. Now what we discover here is that their testimony does not agree. Their testimony doesn't agree, and what we have in this is what we might call the false true dynamic of the passage. This passage has a strange, you might say, false true dynamic. False. The actions that the court takes here are false. It's a mockery. It's a sham in the face of the truth of Jesus Christ. But true, true, almost accidentally, the court's actions reveal Jesus' purpose and identity. The court here becomes almost accidental mouthpieces for the person and work of Jesus Christ. So right here, and it's not just here, but right here in verse 58, you have false and true at the same time. False. The testimony does not agree. And Jesus Uh, As it seems, perhaps they thought, Jesus was not intending to knock down this temple in some kind of insurrectionist event. But, but, can you hear in the accusation a true dynamic, a, a true expression? In fact, what we discover is in this accusation, the priests and the council land on a truth that's at the very heart of why Jesus is on trial. Their problem is that their framing is wrong or their witness count is wrong, but underneath it is a truth that's at the very heart of the whole book of Mark. As you approach the end of the book of Mark, you discover Mark is really a story, a true story, of course, about the temple. Mark begins in the wilderness. Jesus, as it were, in exile, away from Jerusalem, away from the presence of God, away from the temple. But there in the wilderness, there's a voice in the desert that prepares the way of the Lord. John the Baptist says, make the highway, make the highway for one to come into the presence of God. And throughout the book, we find Jesus, he's on the highway. And as the book centralizes towards the end, there's this heading down the highway toward Jerusalem that we start to see in Jesus. And as he arrives, the final week of ministry, his triumphal entry, he goes straight for the temple. He's got the temple in mind. The highway has led him to the temple. As he enters the temple, he flips tables over. He calls out the authority of the temple. Something new is forming as Jesus is here by the temple. And then Mark 13, he prophesies that the temple is going to be destroyed. The old order is going to pass away. And then here in Mark chapter 14, Mark draws out perhaps the most provocative statement of Christ's whole ministry, right on trial. The temple would be destroyed and built in three days. You see, this was something Jesus had said. You can read about it in John chapter 2 that Jesus had prophesied that indeed the temple would be destroyed and rebuilt in himself. And Mark's a master storyteller. Mark's a master storyteller, and he saves this climactic announcement of Jesus right here for the heart of the trial. I will destroy this temple and build it three days later. 
But what we discover is that what Jesus is announcing is not knocking down this temple brick by brick, though that would come in about 40 years. What Jesus is announcing is that he himself is the temple, and that in his death and his resurrection, a new temple will come. And here you have this contrast. Here you have this contrast. You're sitting and basking in the light of the temple. And imagine yourself as Peter. And imagine yourself out of one corner of your eye being able to see that glorious shining temple. And then you peek over in the courtyard and you see this man on trial. Which one, if you were to gaze on the glory and presence and communion and beauty of God, which way should Peter look? Should should he peek over at that temple? Should he peek over at that temple in all its shining glory? Or should he look back this way to Jesus Christ? Because you see, in the basking in the light of the temple, the new temple had come in Jesus Christ. No wonder, no wonder he's on trial. Because in many ways, the book of Mark is a trial. It's a trial on the temple. It's a trial on the old order of Jewish authority, and Jesus has found it guilty. He's found it guilty, and not only has he found it guilty, he's condemned it to death. But then Jesus has announced, Jesus has announced to the disciples, Jesus has announced to the priests, and Jesus would announce to you this morning that Jesus Christ is the temple of glory to whom you may look. You go back into the Old Testament, there's prophecies of a glorious temple that would come. The Old Testament has this major repeated theme of temple destruction, temple rebuilding. You go to the end of the book of Ezekiel, and there's this glorious temple beyond all comparison. And in the sense, Jesus right here on trial is being revealed as there he is. Not so much there it is, there he is. There he is. The sacred place of the presence and glory of God. You see, friends, in this discovery is announced to us uh, the uniqueness of the Christian faith. World religions, even today, have their temples. They have their sacred spaces, these places that you go to insert transcendence, to find something beyond you. Others have their own sacred spaces. Some speak of creation as their kind of cathedral that they go into uh, in order to find the transcendent presence of God. Go to a national park and read on the signs and see how many places you find religious language being used to describe the sights that are being seen. Others perhaps treat something like a stadium, a football stadium or a basketball stadium, and the rituals that take place there as a kind of temple. Uh, You enter these rituals and you find that which you really long for and love. Some, perhaps, their temple, their sacred space is more simple than that. Their couch, their man cave, whatever. The place that you go to, uh, to find something truly sacred, truly beautiful, truly worthy. And the reality is we're all found like those Jews in the first century there. We're found sinful before a living God, chasing lesser glory, falling short of the glory of God. And we're chasing something that's just inferior. We're chasing sacred space and sacred presence in things and places. And the Christian faith says this, look at the person. Look at the person of Jesus Christ. He is, in a very narrow sense, guilty, you might say. 
guilty, you might say, of declaring to us that human temples and human buildings are insufficient to bring to you the presence and glory of God. Jesus absolutely declared that. He absolutely declared that. And isn't it great that he declared that? Isn't it a wonderful thing that our place of transcendence, our place of glory, is in the presence of God in Jesus Christ? Destroyed, yes, but arisen three days later, never to die again. This temple could be destroyed in 70 A.D., but our temple can't. Our temple is, was not destroyed in 70 A.D., and nothing will happen, no destruction will happen that will take down Jesus Christ now that he is risen again. This is our temple discovery on the trial. But there's a second discovery here. A second discovery here, a priestly discovery. That's in verses 60 through 63. Verse 60 through 63. The high priest gets up and he's got a question. We're not really surprised that the high priest would be getting a little uncomfortable. We're not surprised that the high priest would be ready to challenge Jesus Christ on this point. He's the chief officer of the temple. He's the chief officer of this place that is supposed to bring the presence of God. His job was to go into the temple and lead God's people by representation into a divine encounter. And he's being challenged a bit. He's been challenged this whole week of the uh, leading up to the trial of Jesus here. And so the priest stands in the midst of the crowd. He stands in the midst of the crowd and feel the drama of this confrontation here. Here is Jesus Christ who has done all of this work. He's done his miracles and he's standing as the presence of God and now the chief priest stands up and looks him in the eye. Literature or film often moves to this kind of dramatic one-on-one encounter of good versus evil, of the new regime versus the old regime. Some of you might think of Obi-Wan Kenobi versus Darth Vader, uh, this kind of forces of good and evil facing off. It all comes down to this, this moment of encounter. Here it is, the high priest in the courtyard, Jesus Christ. So the high priest asks, he asks the question, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? In the previous discovery, uh, we see Jesus Uh, as the temple, and in many ways in the mind of the people there, they were talking about an object or a place, a building, something they could touch. Now it moves more personal in verse 61. We're not exploring Jesus' thoughts about the temple in their mind. We're exploring Jesus' thoughts about himself. Who are you, Jesus? We're ready for Jesus' response. Nicholas Perrin, who's a leading scholar in drawing out the priestly themes of the book of Mark, says we're approaching here the climax of the entire book. I'm not convinced it's the absolute climax, but it's definitely in the running for being the climax of the entire book. I've heard it said that the climax, the climax of an event, the climax of a film, for example, is where uh, the music is racing and building up to its absolute peak and your heart rate is rising as you feel the music developing and the climax is what happens right after the music stops and there's this pause and everyone is watching. What happens right when the music stops? Everything is coming together. What's going to take place? 
Will the protagonist win? Will he fail? Will he discover who he is? Uh, Etc. Look what happens. You can almost hear the music stopping at the end of verse 61. What is Jesus going to say on trial when he's asked the big question? And here it is. I am. I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, in answer to the question. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a jaw-dropping statement. This is a jaw-dropping statement. If you're listening with Jewish ears, you should be absolutely amazed at what you just heard. You should be amazed if you're watching a film, continuing that illustration. If you turn on the movie, it's on TV, and you turn it on right at the climax, and you see this great event happen, you'll probably just shrug your shoulders. You say, okay, I guess that was an important event. But if you've been watching the whole thing, that climax comes, and you're right immersed into it. We have to immerse ourselves into verse 62 in the context of all that's built up to this point, all the expectations of Jewish culture leading up to verse 62, because you see what Jesus is doing here. He's paraphrasing two Old Testament passages, two Old Testament passages of anticipation. Psalm 110, verse 1. We'll sing this later. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 prophesies a divine Lord, one who is God, who would come and conquer the enemies of God. And in Psalm 110, this divine Lord is revealed that he will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you don't need to know much about what the order of Melchizedek is to understand this. The order of Melchizedek is not this chief priest's order. Psalm 110 says a new priest will come who will bring a new priesthood. And it won't be that Levitical priesthood. It will be a new priest. And suddenly you stop on your mind and you say, wait a minute. While on trial, did Jesus just look the high priest in the eye and say the new priestly order has come and it's not you? Absolutely. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. The new priest is in town. The new priest has arrived. It's the divine Lord. It's the divine priest after the order of Melchizedek who will sit at the right hand of God Most High. He reveals himself to this priest. No wonder, no wonder the priest is dismayed. But Jesus is also merging here a second Old Testament passage. We read it earlier, Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, 500 years written or so before this text is written, Daniel, God's people are away from the temple. But they're taught to look and behold what is yet to be. Daniel 7 reads as this, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Daniel 7. He's going to come on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man and all the nations will serve him. And Daniel 7 there is full of temple language. Clouds is temple language or imagery. 
Uh, the Old Testament speaks of God roaring from the temple on the clouds. When the priests would enter the temple and offer the sacrifice, there'd be a cloud and a picture of the presence of God. You think of God's people in uh, Egypt, or God's people coming out of Egypt, and the glory cloud that would later settle on the tabernacle and then the temple. It would be the priest going into the temple that would, as it were, bring that glory cloud. And what Daniel 7 says is you may not have an earthly temple right now. You may be in Babylon, but there is going to be one who comes There's going to be a priest who comes who's going to storm, not the holy of holies that you can see, but will storm heaven itself, the holy of holy of holy of holies. And he's going to come before the presence of the ancient of days, will come before the presence of God himself, and the glory of God will be there for all to see, and they will worship this heavenly priest. This Son of Man will rise into the Holy of Holies and the world will worship. And Jesus looks at this priest and says, it's me. I am the Son of Man. I am the divine priest after the order of Melchizedek to enter the presence of God, to bring the priestly glory and presence of Almighty God to his people. What a statement. It would not have been more dramatic in this moment if Jesus had called down a legion of angels to wipe out the place. It's greater than that because Jesus has just revealed who he is. He is that priest right on trial. And what we look at here is that we have now seen the glory of Jesus Christ positioned not just in front of this high priest but in front of you and me. That we are encountering and discovering who is Jesus Christ. You see, previously we observed that so many look for their temples, their sacred spaces. Where will I find God? The same kind of people. People like the high priest or Peter or us. We look for people as well. We look for people that are somehow going to lead us to where we need to go, lead us to the Holy of Holies, lead us to the presence of God. Of course, in world religions, they have their priests. Others of us, we look to maybe a spouse or some other individual, and we think, well, this person is going to get me where I need to go. Maybe a person of wisdom, a person of understanding, a person of beauty, a person, whatever it is that you want, this person is going to lead me there. And our answer, The answer of the Christian is this. We have the Son of Man riding on the clouds. We have the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, our high priest. And no more, no more do we need that old temple system, that priest and all he offered. No more do we need any other priest. Likely none of you this morning are tempted to run back to the Old Testament system of worship. But you may be tempted to run to all kinds of things. And here is Jesus Christ, and he's just told you who he is. I am, he says. I am the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power. So we have in this text a temple discovery. Then we have a priestly discovery. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our priest. Third, a sacrificial discovery. A sacrificial discovery. And here we'll draw some threads together through the whole of the text. 
Christ our temple, Christ our priest. But there's more. Let's go back to this statement that Jesus makes concerning himself in verse 62. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And what's the reaction to this statement? The priest tears his garments. This is the statement that gets Jesus Christ condemned to death. And you're not surprised by that, are you? Because he's just called out the high priest and let him know things are changing. No wonder the priest, no wonder the crowd wants Christ dead. This should just lead us to further awe at Jesus Christ. Because you see, throughout the book of Mark, Jesus veils his identity. He unveils his identity. You discover who he is. You, you learn his person. You learn his work. But in another sense, he veils it. Many in Mark give testimony to who is Jesus Christ. Mark himself does it. The first verse of the book, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John the Baptist does it. Some of those who are healed declare who he is. The demons declare it. But Jesus himself doesn't make a declaration like this throughout the book of Mark. Uh, you, you go to Mark chapter 8. Peter declares it. Peter says, you are the Christ. He gives this declaration of his identity. But Mark 8.30, Jesus, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Don't tell them. Why not, Jesus. Why wouldn't Jesus have them tell? Well, he's, it's timing. He's waiting. He's waiting for an event. He's waiting for a moment to make it clear, to announce from his own lips the fullness of who he is. And now it comes. Now it comes. He's waiting for the moment. He's waiting for the moment to say it. He's had chance after chance after chance to say this. But when would Jesus Christ make this statement? At the very moment, it would condemn him to death. At the very moment, it would condemn him to death. If it was you, if it was me, you'd be sitting here saying, Jesus, we could have done it another way. There are a lot of chances you had to say it, and you had to pick the one that would lead to your death. You think about your own life. Someone comes to you. You're waiting for that chance. You're waiting for that chance for someone to ask you, is that you? You're waiting for a senior vice president to come up to you and say, wait, was it you that worked on that project? I, I can't believe it. That, uh, you know, that was wonderful. And that's the moment you're ready to say, oh, yes. Oh, yes, I, I put a lot of work into that. I'm glad you recognized. Maybe a promotion is in order. Uh, and you, you're timing. You're thinking, when am I going to get this chance? to tell everybody my greatness. Jesus thinks the opposite way. I will make the declaration of who I am when it leads to my death. Because you see, Jesus never seeks to separate his identity from his mission. Jesus doesn't want to be known as the Christ, separate from Jesus being the Christ who is going to die. And at the very moment that this declaration would lead to his condemnation to death before the council, Jesus says, let me tell you who I am. Now let me tell you who I am. Let me show you my identity in a way that will lead to my death because only through the death of Jesus Christ can who he is then be truly known. And this offer of Christ, you're in awe of Jesus. Why would he do this? Why would Jesus now reveal himself? 
in a way that will lead to his condemnation. Well, it's drawing out another feature of Jesus' identity. Because you see, throughout this text, we've had these false accusations against Jesus. Nothing sticks against him. Nothing can stick against Jesus Christ, but by the end of the text, he's sent to his death as one not guilty. Isn't that interesting? Here by the temple, revealed to us as a sinless, spotless, without blemish one who is sent to die by the priests. What does that sound like? Leviticus 1, 3, and 4, on the offerings in the tabernacle, later at the temple. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. An offering without blemish that will make atonement for the sinners in the presence of the temple. A sinless one, treated as a sinner, killed, that those around might live instead. That is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And here we see the false true dynamic of the text. False. Jesus deserved none of this. This trial is in a very real sense a joke. Jesus does not deserve to be put to death. He is without sin, and Mark makes that clear. The false dynamic, but the true dynamic. The court here almost finds itself in the place of God or as emissaries of God, because what are they doing? They're sending the sinless Jesus to death as the sacrifice for sin. You see, that's almost by accident. Oh, it's it's certainly by accident. But their actions in this are announcing to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the temple, Christ is the priest, and Christ is the sacrifice. Isaiah 53, verses 8 and 9 By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. No deceit in his mouth, yet put to death, crucified for sinners." Over and over again, as we come to the book of Mark, as we live our life, as we walk through life as a Peter, verse 54, following at the distance, we are exposed as sinners. We're exposed as those not following the way of the cross. We're exposed as members of the crowd following Jesus. But as that crowd follows Jesus, Throughout the book of Mark, it's as if the crowd thins out and thins out and thins out, and in the end, there's just one who is making that journey to the cross and completing it. Just after this text, Peter, he'd said he'd go all the way to the cross. Three times, Peter is put on trial. Are you a servant of Jesus Christ? Three times. No, no, no. He gives it up. You see, this passage and this text exposes us. We're looking at Jesus Christ going to the cross, and all of us realize that's not really an accurate description of me. I don't take up my cross. 
I stumble in the way, or we look at Jesus and we see the temples or the priests that we love and we go to. We're like the high priest here. Don't tell me that my temple has to go away. Don't tell me that I have to decrease. We're like this priest. And sometimes it makes us so angry, we start to sound like the crowd of verse 64 and 65. Cover Jesus' face, prophesy, make him look like a fool because I want to hold on to what is so dear to me. We are the mocking crowd, and Christ is the sacrifice for sin. He, that is God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ is this sacrificial lamb on our behalf to die for us. And you see, friends, this is how the gospel writers, and maybe Mark in particular, teach to us what's called the Christian doctrine of justification. We read about justification in the writings of, say, the Apostle Paul, and it's this logical flow. It's brilliance, and it's rigorous, and it's systematic. Mark teaches it like this. Jesus Christ is this man who is going to the cross. And there were a bunch of people who were called to follow with him. But they gave him up. And they put him to death on that cross. But Jesus went to be that sacrificial death for the very people who gave him up. And those people who give him up can find life by faith in the Son of Man who is riding on the clouds of heaven. And if you this morning see this Jesus and put your faith in him, Leviticus 1.4 happens for you. His offering is accepted to make atonement for you. My sin is on Jesus Christ. Christ's record of righteousness is on me. Let me just close here. There are all kinds of applications you can make from this text. Applications from the temple. We should come to Christ to discover the glory of God and not any other place. Applications from Christ, our priest, seeing Christ as the one leading us again into the presence of God. But let's close here. The sacrificial nature of Jesus Christ. You are guilty. You are the guilty one in the trial court of the living God. And you need a payment. You need a sinless offer. You need Jesus Christ, condemned and buried and then risen again for you, that you might put your faith in him. What would hold you even this morning, wherever you are, from putting your faith in this Savior, acknowledging Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the payment for your sins, risen again that you might live. This today is a day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and we're in awe of Jesus, a Savior of sinners. Thank you that Jesus went the way of the cross that none of us would go or have gone or do go. Lord, I pray that this would indeed be a day of salvation for us, that we would be those putting our faith in Jesus, a simple faith for the very first time, or once again being reminded of who you are, and what you have done, and recognizing that our only hope is this Savior of sinners. May that be so for each of us in this room here this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. We'll turn to Psalm 110, Selection A, which I already introduced in the sermon. No more introduction needed. We'll stand for 110A.